Father, hear our prayer. We want to become more aware of your presence. We want to experience the glory of your goodness. And we won't settle for anything less than to live in your presence today and every day. Because where you are, there is goodness. There is overwhelming, overflowing goodness. And our confession, our corporate confession is, Lord, we would often have settled for less than what you had for us. But everyone in this room comes with some deep longing, some thirst for more. And of things, we've had our fill, and yet we hunger and thirst still. So Lord, we pray that you would satisfy this overwhelming thirst in our souls with your presence, with all of your goodness. Lord, cause all of your goodness to pass over us today so that we may know you as you really are. so that we may live our lives for your glory alone. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This doesn't happen every day, but I woke up this morning and my first thought um, is this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I wonder, where did your love story start? Mine started in Waco Hall. Uh, Up in Waco, I was a freshman and I had a blind date with a girl who was a junior in high school and my brother and his wife introduced her to me. They paid for my ticket to all universities sing. They paid for my meal. And they said, all you have to do is just sit by her. We're not asking you to start some lifelong relationship. She needs somebody to sit with her, and we want you to sit with her. And I was very hungry and very willing to do that. And I would say we had a wonderful evening. She's right here. You could ask her whether it was wonderful, but I thought it was a wonderful evening. And then two years later, without having seen her in the interim, I was sitting in that same room. And I looked on the row behind me, And lo and behold, there she was again in Waco Hall. The next day I asked her on a date. She became the piano player at our church where I was a pastor. And that's how the whole, our love story started in Waco Hall. So what's kind of funny is every once in a while, they asked me to come back and preach up there, either to uh, the chapel service or once I did a revival up there and preached there every day for a week. And I always kind of walk in that room and see those two spots where we were when we first met and first dated and I just kind of look around the room at the students and and tell them that story and say so look around because you never know you know just down the row from you maybe that person that you spend the rest of your life with in the scriptures we often find love stories beginning at the well stay with me in the old testament you have Abraham who's so concerned that he won't send his, Isaac, his son Isaac back to his homeland. He keeps him at home, but he sends his servant. And the servant has prayed a prayer. And his prayer is, 
Lord, when I come to the well, if there's a girl there who will water my camels also and offer me a drink, then I'll know she's the one who's supposed to marry my master's son. And sure enough, Rebecca comes and she has biceps. She waters the camels, all the camels, and then he knows and, and he takes her home and she and Isaac are married. Next generation, Jacob, one of their twin sons, running for his life from his own brother, comes back to that same well. And there's a stone over the well and um, a beautiful young shepherdess, Rachel, comes up. He moves the stone. They fall in love at the well. Fast forward to Moses in the book of Exodus. And uh, he's running for his life from Pharaoh. And he comes to a well and he protects a group of shepherdesses. And it turns out that one of them, they're the daughters of Jethro. And one of them is Zipporah who becomes his wife. So, when you're reading the Bible and you come to a story about a well, well, you wonder, is this going to be another love story? Would you open your Bibles with me? John chapter 4. I want to read verses 4 through 26. We've been talking about being called to Christ for four months. In May, we begin to talk about being called to community. And then we'll finish out the year starting in September, called to change the world. It's just three segments of our 2020 vision um, where we make disciples and make relationships and we make a difference in the world. And I'm convinced we'll never make a difference in the world unless we become the kinds of disciples who make relationships with people so that they can become disciples also. And we have no better example in the Scripture than Jesus. So let's stand together and hear the word of the Lord today. John chapter 4. And I begin reading with verse 4. And John, the beloved disciple, writes these words. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him. And He would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks the water, this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right. 
When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please, please be seated. You ever surprised by our Savior? It's interesting that in this story, Jesus surprises everyone. Uh, He surprises the woman by talking to her. He surprises his disciples because when they get back from the town where they've gone to get food, they can't believe, but they're afraid to ask Jesus, what are you doing talking to a woman you don't know and beyond that, a Samaritan woman? And what Jesus knows, maybe they don't know that she's been married five times and is in her sixth relationship, and all of this makes no sense to them at all, and they want to talk about food because that changes the subject, and Jesus says, so I have food you don't know anything about, because my, my food is to do the work that my Father has sent me to do. Sort of a broad outline of, of John 4, if we just sort of looked at it, I, I think it's really a play, and there are always two different people or groups of people on the stage at the same time. So it starts out, for instance, with Jesus and the woman. But when the disciples come back, the woman leaves. And then it's Jesus and the disciples. And then the whole town comes back because the woman has come to faith and brings her friends and they also come to believe. So sort of, if you just looked at it from the beginning of the story to the end, it starts with water. And then there are some images about a wedding, and then there's something about worship, and then about work, and then about witness. And I don't have time to teach all of that today. I did a series on a Sunday night, on Sunday nights uh, three or four years ago, and taught several weeks on this. I don't have time to do that. But what I would like to do today is look at the story of this woman's longing for something. So she comes at noonday to a well. That's not the time that they typically came to the well, but she comes to the well at noon. It's interesting because it was also midday when Jacob showed up at the well and Rachel came. And here is a person who has been through, we learn from the story, that Jesus knows things. Now, the interesting thing in the Gospel of John is that Jesus does know things and everybody else thinks they know things. So Nicodemus thinks he knows that Jesus is a teacher who's come from God, and that's how he's able to do these miracles. And Jesus ultimately says to him in chapter 3, verse 10, so are you the teacher of Israel? You're the big teacher of Israel, and you don't understand. You think you know, but you don't know. And we'll find this woman saying, well, we, we know that Messiah is coming but she doesn't know yet that Jesus is the very Messiah that the Samaritan people are waiting for. But Jesus will say, 
Because he knows people. John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. He knows people and they believe in him because of his miracles, but it says he doesn't trust them. Literally, it says he doesn't believe in them. He doesn't trust their trust because it's based upon miracles at this point. And what he really wants is for them to hear what he is saying and to believe what he is saying. And what we know from this gospel is that Jesus knows. And what he knows about Nicodemus is that a guy as religious as Nicodemus is going to have to start all over again. He's going to have to be born again of the water and of the Spirit. He'll have to be born again. But notice, Jesus does not say that to the woman at the well. He doesn't say it to the blind man in chapter 5. The lame man in chapter 5. The blind man in chapter 9. He doesn't say it to Lazarus in chapter 11. In other words, Jesus meets everybody right where they are. So at the beginning of the gospel, there there are two disciples of John the Baptist who start following Jesus, and Jesus says, what do you want? And they say, we want to know where you stay. And he says, come and see. He looks at Nathanael, and Nathanael questions whether any good thing can come from Nazareth. And Jesus says, you're an Israelite in whom there is no guile. You're all Israel without the Jacob thrown in. And I saw you when you were under the tree, and you're going to see angels ascending and descending on me. And Nathanael is amazed by that and confesses him as Savior. In chapter 3, it's Nicodemus who needs to be born again. And we sometimes separate Nicodemus from the woman at the well because obviously they're so very different from each other. But what I want you to see is that John is placing them side by side for us to see clearly that everybody needs Jesus Christ. And one way we sort of measure where they are in relationship with Jesus Christ is who they think he is. So there's this progressive unveiling. For Nicodemus, it's kind of over a three-year period. For this woman, it's during this, this day or a couple of days. For the blind man, it's, it's in one day. But, but first she sees Jesus as a Jewish man. And she, what does she know? Well, she, she knows that Jewish men don't speak to Samaritan women. So she's confused by this but Jesus sees the longing and the thirst of her soul and he asks her for water he had to be in Samaria it says why Jesus could have gone a different route he could have crossed the Jordan River he could have missed Samaria altogether that's what a lot of people did why does Jesus go through well he has an appointment to keep but I love the first verse this where it says he was exhausted anybody else here just been tired because of the time change Last week, I wish they would just quit messing with that, right? Just leave that alone because it's like I lose an hour of sleep every day and then get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to take cows to shows and things like that. It just gets a little, a little crazy. But if you think our time changed in the last week has been a little bit crazy, think about Jesus who transcended time and then came down the staircase of heaven to our world and became bound by time. And he wasn't like pretending to be tired. He was tired. And he was exhausted and he was thirsty and she was right. He didn't have any way to get water out of that well. And so she comes up and he asks her for a drink. But in a deeper sense, he realizes this isn't just about water. And she says, well, why would I give you water? And he says, look, if you knew, you think you know, but if you knew me, you would know that I could give you water. And I think the story of our lives is this story of longing, and it expresses itself in different ways. I I read this week uh, about one of our NASA scientists who was in charge of the VIM, uh, the Voyager uh, something messaging, and when the Voyagers were sent out, she was the one who put together the sounds that would be on the Voyager, like a gold record on the Voyager, so that if, for instance, they encountered 
uh, some other life form out there, intelligent life form, they would be able to understand what human beings were about. So what did she put on this sounds of earth? That's what it was called. She put the sound of a human heartbeat. She wanted to know what our heartbeat sounded like. And she also put on there um, a part of Beethoven's 130th opus, opus 130, the Cavatina movement. I hope you'll listen to it sometime this week. I got to listen to it this week. I, I didn't even know anything about it. I don't claim to be an aficionado of great music, but I listened to it this week. And it, you can hear in the music this deep sense of sorrow and searching. And Beethoven himself, they say, in the score of that music, when he wrote that part of, uh, of that opus, he wrote in the, in the margin, Sehnsucht. Now, he was German, so you expect him to speak German, but the word means longing. C.S. Lewis would write about it years later and say, if there's something in you, if you find in you a desire, look, if you have a desire, there's probably some human earthly reason for that desire. Uh, For instance, a baby feels hunger and there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim and there's such a thing as water. But if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, it doesn't mean the world is um, a fraud What it means is I was probably made for another world. Jesus is really thirsty, but this woman is even more thirsty. And when he says to her, so go get your husband, he's not changing the subject. What he's showing her is this is not just about coming to a well, but at the well, people fall in love. And you've been trying to fall in love for a long time. Look, was she divorced five times? Was she widowed five times? We don't really know. We know she's living with a person. She's living with the sixth man. And Jesus, finally, the seventh man, the lover of her soul, shows up and shows her her thirst and her longing. Simon Tugwell captures the longing of our souls. Every one of us longs to, to love and to be loved, to know and to be known. And what's that about? And Tugwell says, it's the desire for God, which is the most fundamental appetite of all. It's an appetite we can never eliminate. We may seek to disown it, but it will not go away. If we deny that it's there, we shall in fact only divert it to some other object or range of objects. And that will mean that we invest some creature or creatures with the full burden of our need For God, a burden which no creature can carry. So we look to be loved. We are longing for love. That's what we've been searching for our whole lives. And this woman, though she's a Samaritan woman who's been married five times and is living with a man, she's no different from you and I in the sense that her soul, Augustine said, oh God, you have made us for yourself. No wonder we are restless until we find rest in you. So we're searching for something to fill that void in our souls. Some years ago, a a preacher named Howard Mama went over to Paris, France. He was preaching there in an American church in Paris. And he noticed after service one day, there was a guy in a dark suit. And everybody was kind of huddled around the guy. It was clear that they were admiring the man. And he came to discover that the man was a famous philosopher. And Howard Mama and he became friends. The guy came initially to the church to hear the organ music, which may still often be the case. I'm not sure. Um, But over time, heard Howard Mama preach and really liked what he said. And the man was Albert Camus, the existentialist, the French existentialist philosopher. And and Mama, for 40 years, never told what their conversations were about. But, But at the age of 92, 
he told what Albert Camus, uh, who wrote a number of really significant novels, said to him. This is what Camus said. The reason I've been coming to church is because I'm seeking. By the way, is that why you're here? I'm almost on a pilgrimage seeking something to fill the void that I'm experiencing and no one else knows. Certainly the public, the readers of my novels, while they see that void, are not finding the answers in what they're reading. But deep down you're right. I'm searching for something that the world is not giving me. This is the woman at the well. And if you want to see her today, look in the mirror. Because we're thirsting and hungry. And even the people who say, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I'm really not looking for God. I'm just not looking for that. N.T. Wright wrote about this recently and he said, there's a world of difference between sleeping in a single bed and a double bed. Amen to that, by the way. And he says, here's the thing. Um, These people who say they don't believe in God, they're like people who wake up in a double bed and wonder why the other side of the bed is warm. Why the sheets are rumpled like somebody's been there and they know there's something else out there they just don't know what it is and jesus says if chapter 4 verse 10 if you knew the gift if you knew who was here you would ask me for water and it's, it's not just that god sees the needs of our lives but here's the, the main thing i want you to hear today god satisfies the needs of our lives. So Jesus says, here is what living water is. I want you not only to have that thirst in your soul satisfied, but I want you so to live life in the power of the Holy Spirit that you become a conduit of water for others. So you got rivers of living water springing up inside you so that you're not always searching something. Philip Yancey wrote years ago about two guys who had a street ministry and they were playing the song on their guitars, singing on the street, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. And one man who lived on the street, a man named Mike, walked up and said, so I need that water. And the two young men who had the ministry on the street said, the thing about people who live on the street is they're, they're very, very honest And he said, I'm an alcoholic and I need that water that you're singing about. And they shared with him that day. And and here's the thing. All of us are searching for something deeply longing. And what we're looking for is God. And you can kind of see it in the Old Testament. I remember as a young teenage preacher, I came upon Psalm 42, verse 1, that gives us that song. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so our souls long for you thirst for you my soul thirsts for God for the living God when can I go and meet with God and then I came to Psalm 63 oh God you are my God the King James Version says early earnestly I seek you I thirst for you my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water the prophet Isaiah wrote about it in chapter 44 verse 3 he envisioned a time when water would just flow from the ground it would just come up bubbling like a spring i remember driving with my dad through the hills of east tennessee where his his uh, great grandfather lived back after the civil war and we were just driving through the hills and just streams of water were flowing from the mountainsides and i was reading this same passage of scripture or in isaiah chapter 55 verse 1 this is the classic verse where the prophet says on behalf of god come all you who are thirsty come to the waters you don't have to have money Why would you spend money on things that don't satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Listen, see, the, the water 
What is the living water that Jesus says will, will spring up in your soul? Well, look at water that moves. Living water in the Old Testament. And sometimes it symbolizes wisdom. Sometimes it symbolizes the Holy Spirit. In context, I think what Jesus is saying, this is living water. It's the Spirit-empowered wisdom of Jesus' teaching which enables us not just to believe in Him for what He can do for us, but to believe His words about who He is so that we literally come to life. That is living water. And Jesus will say in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, on the last greatest day of the great feast, He stands up and says, let anyone who is thirsty come to Me. Loud voice. Let anyone who is thirsty come to Me and drink. Because whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, He meant the Spirit whom those who believe in Him. Just leave that verse up there for a minute. Can I just ask you, those of you who say, I know God because I accepted Jesus as my Savior and I was baptized. I know God. Can I just ask you, do these verses describe the life you're living today because this is what jesus meant by salvation not the minimum requirements to get you into heaven that's not what that's not what the gospel means i'm sorry if if baptist preachers of old told you that that's not what the gospel means the gospel means all the goodness of god revealed in relationship with jesus christ that doesn't end with an event but begins and continues upwardly on a progressive pilgrimage for a lifetime this is what god wants for us he wants us to live the kind of life where we're not always thirsting for something here not like like children cs lewis said who are playing with mud pies uh, in a slum not knowing there is such a thing as a vacation by the sea but instead we are filled with the goodness of God. The image that came to me, I've never been there. Maybe, has anybody been to Lake Tahoe? I haven't been there. I guess I should put that on my bucket list, I guess. I don't even have a list. I don't even have a list. But, but I heard about Lake Tahoe, that it's 1,645 feet deep. First time they figured that out was like in 1845. They dropped a champagne bottle, waited, and they went all the way down to the bottom, and they measured it, and then they confirmed it later that it's actually 1,645. But here's the thing about Lake Tahoe. If you, could, if you could spill it on California, it would cover the whole state with 14 and a half inches of water. That's how big Lake Tahoe is. How big is it? It could provide you, each of you, all of you, everybody, 50 gallons of water a day for the next five years. The, the water that evaporates from Lake Tahoe could supply the city of Los Angeles with water for five years. Are you with me? It's a lot of water. But Lake Superior is 120 times that big. And the biggest, uh, the Caspian Sea, is like 576 times that big. So I think we could be safe in saying today, even if I drink a lot of water and I have that reputation, I could not exhaust Lake Tahoe by myself. Neither can you and I exhaust the thirst-quenching love of God which is found in the Holy Spirit whom Jesus Christ has sent so that we not only have enough water to satisfy us, but we become those out of whom. This is, you know, the, the legend, um, the legend, the Hebrew legend about when Jacob moved the big rock with that Herculean effort to provide water. The legend was that when he moved the stone from that well, the water flowed for 20 years. The whole time he was in Haran, 
there was a river of water coming from that well. And that's the picture that Jesus is giving to this woman in this love story. Is I have a life which will make you a life-giving person. And to confirm that, while His disciples come back and argue about whether or not Jesus has eaten, she goes into the city and Jesus tells His disciples, the fields are white unto harvest. But it's not the disciples who reap the harvest of the city of Sychar. It's the woman who has discovered the love of God. And here's the great thing in verse 28 when the disciples come on the scene and she goes back into the city, she forgets her water bucket. Because something so much more important has happened to her. And I wonder if anything has happened in our souls that makes us forget all the other things as just things. This is salvation. When God so fills our souls with His Holy Spirit that we not only have life to live, we have life to give. We become life-giving people. We become a life-giving church with enough life to offer to the four million people that I ran into at the rodeo yesterday. There's enough for everybody. They might run out of funnel cakes. God forbid they run out of blackberry cobblers, cinnamon rolls, and coffee. But we would not run out of life to give to others if we would drink deeply of this water of life that Jesus Christ has made available to us. And the question is, do we have the courage to drink this water? And in the silver chair, C.S. Lewis tells this story again. You remember this in Chronicles of Narnia about the little girl named Jill who's so thirsty? And at the same time she sees an amazing, beautiful stream of water, she also sees a big lion. And she's afraid to go to the water because she's afraid the lion's going to hurt her. And the lion, Aslan, representing God in the story, it's not, pretty, it's not very hard to figure out the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, what the things symbolize. Are you not thirsty, says the lion. She says, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? And he has a low rumbling growl. And she says, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise, said the lion. That is so honest. God has not promised not to change you if you come to him. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. He said, I have swallowed up girls, boys, women, men, kings, emperors, cities, and realms. And he didn't say it as if he was boasting or as if he was sorry or as if he were angry. He just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion, said God to us. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And Aslan says, there is no other stream there is no other river of life except the words that jesus spoke which we believe which give life to us and as nancy spiegelberg said as jesus said if you knew me as nancy spiegelberg said i didn't really know who god was because if i'd known who god was in this dry land if i'd only known god better i would have come running with a bucket because god is a life-giving god who gives us life so that we may live and give life to others. This, by the way, if you wonder this week sometime, is why you're here. To have relationship with God. Not just to know about Him, but to know Him and to know Him so well that if somebody asks you about Him, you can actually tell them who He is because you don't just know about Him. You know Him. 
That's what salvation means. That's why we get baptized. And that's why Jesus in His great high priestly prayer later in this same book in chapter 17, verse 3, defines life. He said, this is life. This is eternal life. This is the life of God to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So where did your love story start? In the heart of God. Maybe right here. Maybe right now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for loving us, for so loving the world that you gave your only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for the great love story of the ages, your love for us. It turns out it's better than anything we can see on the movie screen. Anything we've experienced in real life, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would make your life real to us today as we believe in you. Not just so that you'll give us something, but because of what you have said about who you are. Lord, correct our misunderstanding of your Messiahship so that we don't have a distorted discipleship. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.